John chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, it says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. You know, I remember talking with some Jehovah's Witnesses that had stopped by my door one time, and in their own terms, they said they were going around sharing the kingdom. I said, well, as you know, the central figure of any kingdom is the king. I said, so you know what, I I do have a question or two for you. I'd like to get sorted out. I said, if we're talking about the kingdom, and uh, we're talking about the kingdom of Christ, then He is the king. And I said, you know, from what I understand, where you and I differ is in our understanding of who the king is. I said, because I recognize that Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and God the Son. He is part of what we call the Trinity. That word is not found in the Bible, but the concept is all over it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is in fact God. He is God in human flesh. He is, as the Bible said, Emmanuel, which is interpreted God with us. And they said that no, that Jesus is not God. And then they tried to move the conversation on to another subject. And I said, you know what? I think we really need to stay right here. If you're sharing His kingdom, like you say you are, and he's the king, then how much more important of an issue can you deal with? And who is the king? What does that mean? And so is he God or is he not? And I introduced a couple Bible passages that talk about Christ being God. And they kept wanting to move on to another subject. And I kept saying, no, let's get this one nailed down. If you can give me a satisfactory answer from the Bible, or show me where I'm misunderstanding it somewhere, then I'm glad to move on. But let's get this first. If it's his kingdom, then this is a foundational truth to the kingdom. And I believe that this is a foundational truth, so we really need to get this. And at one point, one of them got a little frustrated with me. 
I was being kind. I was being kind. I was just a little bit stubborn, I guess, maybe. At one point, they got a little frustrated, and, and I would, had just shared a Bible verse where they're talking about how Jesus is God. And she looks at me, and she says, look, I believe what I believe, and nothing you're going to say is going to change it. And I said, okay, then I guess there's no point going on with the conversation. Well, then the other one's trying to smooth it out. No, 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 no. We can keep going with the conversation. All right, then what do you think of this verse I just mentioned? <laughs> you know? And I told him, I said, if we're going to have a conversation, we need to both be searching for the truth. I said, I'll promise you, if you can show me how I'm misunderstanding these verses that I'm sharing with you, or show me passages in Scripture that support what you're saying, I'll go to your church. And then the one that was so frustrated a moment ago perked up. And she's like, really? <laughs> and I said, yes. I said, but let me ask you this. If you can't answer the truth that I'm pointing out to you in Scripture here, and if I can give you a satisfactory answer for what you're talking about, will you come to mind? Well, no. It wasn't going to go both ways. Well, the reason that I bring up that experience is because that's kind of what we're seeing. What we're seeing here is, is Jesus Christ is right in front of these people, and He's been doing these many miracles. John records just eight of them, and he says, look, if I was going to record every miracle he ever did, uh, the books of the world couldn't contain all the things that he did. And so the amount of miracles that Christ must have done in a three-and-a-half-year time period would have been phenomenal. And we get a sample of them recorded for us in the Gospels. Well, the Pharisees are against Christ. They reject Him and they want everybody else to reject Him too. And they're trying to find a way to get rid of Him. And so even though the Gospel of John, it is a Gospel of belief. It's about believing. He uses the word belief, believing, over 80 times in the Gospel. Toward the end of the Gospel, the second to last chapter, in chapter 20, He says, look, this is the whole reason that I'm writing to you. So that you can see what Christ did and believe, and that in believing, you'll have life in His name. So it is a gospel all about believing and all pointed to the one goal of having us come to faith in Jesus Christ and because of that faith and because of what Christ did for us, experiencing eternal life. That's His goal. And we see a lot of it. But you know what else we see a lot of? is unbelief. Because as Christ was right there in the middle of these people, in the middle of this group, in the middle of that festival, when He was at the temple for the Festival of Tabernacles, when He was going through life and conducting His ministry, He was met so much by unbelief. In fact, this whole passage is mostly about the unbelief, the hard-heartedness of the people of Israel, and especially their leaderships, the Pharisees. It's about the stubborn, obstinate, hard-hearted unbelief of the religious leaders. In these verses that we read from verses 13 on through verse 34, we see the obstinance of unbelief. Unbelief is just hard-hearted. At times it can be just locked in. Now, thankfully, not all the times. There's little glimmers of hope as we look through this passage. Right? Because there's that point where he says there's a division among the people. Because one group of people, the religious leaders, are saying, look, he did this on the Sabbath day. Nobody that is from God would do that on the Sabbath day. But the other group would say, now wait a minute, this guy just healed somebody that was born blind. And we know that God doesn't listen to people that are wicked. And so how could this happen if He didn't? And so there's a, at least there's a bright spot. But you know what? The really bright spot we're going to focus on next week because next week we're going to see the blind man himself come to faith in Christ and what all was involved uh, within that. But for this week as we're looking at it here, what do we see? We see, the, we see there's a real obstinance to unbelief. A lot of times people, you know, they just don't want to let of their unbelief. They say, well, why? Eternal life is at stake. Eternal life is, is for the having through belief. But you know what? People just don't like to let go of their own power. I think many times it just comes to that. That's definitely what's going on with the Pharisees. 
Pharisees, there's places in the, in the Gospel of John where they say, you know what, if we let him continue like this, everybody's going to believe in him. And then you know what's going to happen? Rome's going to come in and take away our place and our power. So for them, it's about power. We're in control. We've got to be in charge of this thing. We're going to lose it if people follow him. But you know what? All of us kind of do the same thing. Because when we're confronted with our sin and the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, it means we have to repent of our sin, acknowledge that we've done wrong, turn away from that sin and believe in Him. Follow, as he just used it in the last chapter, follow Him. Which means that, you know what has to happen for that to take place? You get dethroned. The day I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I stepped off the throne. My life's not mine anymore. You see, before that, I'm calling the shots. I'm deciding what I think feels right or feels wrong. I'm making those decisions. Well, am I going to be God or is God going to be God? Well, since I didn't turn out to be a very good one, I decided to let Him be God. And I repented of my sins and I put my faith in Jesus Christ. To do that, I had to step down off the throne. We can be obstinate. When we first feel that offer of salvation, it feels threatening to us. That's the way it felt to me. It feels threatening because you have to let go. You have to say, okay, God is right and I'm wrong. I need to turn away from my sin embrace Him. Well, that's what these people were going through. Jesus is right in front of them doing these miracles. And they're hanging on. They're keeping the reins. They're staying on the throne. They're absolutely obstinate in their unbelief. You know, it's an amazing thing. Jesus Christ would go so far as to raise from the dead and people still don't believe in Him. He left a host of witnesses. He left the twelve apostles, which are all willing to be tortured and die for this one truth that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And people still don't believe it. The Apostle Paul would point to a group of over in chapter 15 of the book of 1 Corinthians and say, there's over 500 people that saw Him resurrected from the dead and they're still alive, he would tell the people that, that were in his day, back in that day. He said some of them have died, but most of them are still alive. In other words, you can go talk to them. You can go ask them. You don't have to take my word for it. The Apostle Paul himself was an enemy of the Gospel of Christ trying to stamp out the church and get rid of that teaching. And Christ appeared to him. And all of a sudden his life changed completely. A 180. And that one that was persecuting the church became the biggest preacher of the church. Why? What answers for that change? The Apostle Paul himself said on a number of different occasions, the reason for the change is I saw Christ alive again after he was dead. And people still are obstinate in their unbelief. Well, that's what we're looking at here today is we're seeing that obstinance, that that stubbornness, that hard-heartedness that is saying, look, I believe what I believe and you're not going to change it no matter what you do. Even if you rise again from the dead. That was the Pharisees' position. Well, it's seen in several things within this passage. First of all, it's seen in the fact that they begin with a conclusion. <laughs> Did you notice that? They call for the Pharisees. So they're having this discussion. Is this, is this guy been healed legitimately or not? It happened on the Sabbath, so that causes some muddying of the waters a little bit. The Pharisees and the, the religious leaders of Jews of Israel over time had made a bunch more rules, right? God told them to keep the Sabbath and not work on the Sabbath. And they were like, well, then what does it mean to work? And so they started to come up with a whole bunch of rules on what it is to work or not work. You know, you couldn't trim the wick of a lamp on the Sabbath day. That was considered work. You couldn't, you couldn't light a lamp on the Sabbath day. You couldn't extinguish a lamp on the Sabbath day. So pretty much just stay away from lamps on Sabbath days. You actually weren't allowed to practice medicine on the Sabbath day because that's somebody's job. And so now if it was life-threatening, then you could, you could stop it from getting worse, but you can't actually do anything to make them better. 
that's the problem that they've been having with Jesus. Jesus healed somebody a while back in the Gospel of John on the Sabbath day. And they are up in arms about it. You can't do that on the Sabbath day. Well, this guy's thing is not life-threatening. He's been blind his whole life. One more day is not going to kill him. But Jesus does it on the Sabbath day. Now, we noticed back when Jesus healed a guy on the other Sabbath day that Jesus he doesn't give any excuses for it. He doesn't say, you know what, those are your man-made rules, not God's. There are other times when he does that. Actually, what he does is he says, you know what, my father's always at work and I'm at work with him. In other words, he doesn't go to the, well, this isn't technically breaking the Sabbath. Actually, where he goes is, you know what, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, as is identified in the Gospel of Mark. He says, I I have control of the Sabbath. I don't obey the Sabbath. The Sabbath obeys me. Actually, he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, that rest that we have in Christ. And so he uses it actually to point to who he is. And so he has authority over the Sabbath, so he can do heal this guy on the Sabbath if he wants to. That's what we're seeing here, is the Pharisees have been called out to this miracle to investigate. It happened on the Sabbath. They're supposed to be there to gather all the facts, do an investigation, make a determination for the people. What do they do? Right off the bat, they make a determination. Because in chapter 9, verse 16, it says, Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, they're using some logic here. People from God keep the Sabbath. He didn't keep the Sabbath according to our rules, so he's not from God. Now, it didn't go totally smooth with them right off the bat because you had a a disagreement right with inside of the group. and, And the other side said, Now, wait a minute. This guy healed somebody that's been born blind. As the blind guy would point out later, since the history of the world, nobody's ever heard of somebody healing somebody that's been born blind. And so this is an amazing miracle because, you know, feeding the 5,000 with one boy's lunch wasn't that amazing a miracle. <laughs> because you remember, right after they had that, Jesus told them, you're here because you ate the bread and you were filled. And they said, yeah, well, well show us something. Do something to prove who you are. But you've got this amazing miracle. And so there's this, there's this division. Why is there a the division? Well, because one part of the group is obstinate. They've already made up their mind on who Christ is. And He is not from God. End of story. Nothing you can say is going to change it. We also see it in verses 22 and 23 because it says His parents had said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Kind of wimpy parents. They're going to let him take it. Why? Well, there's a chance that this guy might not have been allowed in the synagogue to begin with because of his blindness. Because they they looked at, kind of like the apostles did, remember they asked the question, whose sin created his blindness, his or his parents? And so my understanding from the time is it was pretty common that blind people and possibly even the parents wouldn't have been allowed in the synagogue to begin with. But it doesn't seem to be the case here because the parents are afraid of being put out of the synagogue. It looks like that last line, it says they kicked him out. I assume that's him being put out of the synagogue. And so it looks like both of them had been allowed in the synagogue. But I think you'd at least have to say this, that both of them are in there on shaky ground. And so the parents probably already feeling like they're on shaky ground with the in crowd. They're a little afraid of this. They're afraid because the Jews had already agreed. This is before this miracle even took place. They had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he is to be put out of the synagogue. You see, their minds were made up ahead of time coming into this thing. That is not an open-mindedness. That is not a fair investigation. That is an obstinate unbelief. And then we also see in verse 24, 
For the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Their mind is made up. In fact, what they really want to happen here is for everybody else to come over to their way of seeing this. Does that sound familiar to any of you guys? We've seen that in our society over the last couple of years. If you say this, if you don't agree with this, you're going to get booted off Facebook. If you don't agree with this, you're going to, you're going to get canceled or whatever. Well, that's what's happening here. They're, they're trying to cancel everybody that doesn't agree with them on this. Now they say to him, now give glory to God. There's possibly two things kind of going on here. They're very similar. One of them is when they say give glory to God, they're saying the eyesight that you've just been given, praise God that you got your eyesight, but cut Jesus out of the deal. And then the, the blind man weighs back in and he says, look, I don't know about this him being a sinner like you say, but I do know this. He's the one that touched me and I can see. But what do they want him to do? Cut Jesus out of the deal. Let's just forget about Jesus. Thank God for your eyesight. It could also be that they're trying to get him to kind of own up to the truth. If you read back in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Achan that commits this horrible sin before God and his family is is being called out on it and he hasn't come forward with the truth about it yet. And Joshua confronts him and he says, come on, give glory to God and tell us what happened. And so that might be kind of how they're using that word, give glory to God, or that phrase, give, give glory to God, tell us the truth. Uh, I think it's probably, leans, I lean more toward the first part, saying, look, give praise and honor to God, but don't allow Jesus to get any of that glory. Let's keep Him pushed out of it. That's what they desperately want, is Him pushed aside. And so we see that their obstinance and their unbelief is seen in, first of all, they have a foregone conclusion. They've made up their mind before they've looked at the facts. And now they're just going to come in and try to make the facts fit their conclusion. But then not only that, we also see within them a nasty habit of rejecting facts. I want to be fair to the Pharisees even. You know what? Part of this is required. If they're actually going to do an investigation, and actually as their position as the teachers of Israel, it was their job to do this investigation. If somebody comes through claiming to be the Christ or a prophet or something like that, it was their job to look over that person's teaching and what was going on around him and to formulate an opinion and to come to Israel with a teaching that would be in line with the Word of God. So that's their job to investigate Christ. And so they're wise to go to the blind guy and see for themselves. I think they're actually even wise to go get the parents. Maybe interview some neighbors. Was this guy really blind? Oh yeah, he's been out there every day. But you do see a stubborn... They're really trying to get rid of these facts, right? In verses 18 through 21, it says, They did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say, so a little skepticism there, was born blind? And notice they're already dealing with people. This, this guy's probably 40 years old. It's not like calling the parents of some junior hire here. The parents point that out. Look, he's of age. Ask him. Absolutely, he's our son. Absolutely, he was born blind. How he sees now, we're not sure. Ask him. Yeah, they would have already had the testimony of the neighbors. They actually were pushed into a corner to actually believe that the miracle even took place. They had to be forced into that position. And they finally were. But rejecting of the facts. Now notice, anytime you have something like this, you have two different things going on. You have the facts, in other words, what happened. And then you have the interpretation of those facts. What does it mean? You see, and it's the interpretation that the Pharisees are afraid of. In this case, the facts are he'd been blind from birth. Jesus makes this mud, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go, and he's healed. Other facts that you need to include into this is that we're also talking about the guy that changed water into wine, walked on water, fed 5,000 people with one boy's lunch, healed the official's son when he wasn't even there. And so this is a guy that's doing uh, uncountable other miracles as well. So what is, what is the fact? Is that you've got this guy that is 
done all these amazing miracles, has now made this guy see that's been blind for his whole life. And that's really what he tells him. He put mud on my eyes. I washed. I see. But they ask him over and over till finally he says, look, I already told you. Why are they asking him over and over? They want to find a discrepancy in the story that they can say, ah, see, he's making it up. But they can't find anything. They're trying to twist the facts, get rid of the facts, anything that they can do to get rid of the miracle itself. They're pushed into a corner where they cannot get rid of the miracle. And so what do they do then? They apply pressure. They keep going back to that guy. All right, now tell us what happened. They line it with something first. They say, look, we know this guy is not from God. So now what happened? We know this guy's a sinner. So now what happened? And the guy's story never changes. He just continues. Chapter 9, verse, in verse 17, he says, So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? Now, notice, notice what's happening. They're asking for more. These aren't just the facts. These aren't just, He put the mud on my eyes, I washed, I see. Now they're saying, What do you say about him? In other words, what does this mean? And what does it mean? It means that he's the Son of God. That's what it means. Well, this guy doesn't have that much information yet. But he gives a reasonable explanation. He says, He's a prophet. Well, that's a decent explanation for where he's at for the information he had so far. But he gives his interpretation. You see, that's what they are afraid of. Because all throughout the Gospel of John, he calls every miracle that John does signs. Right? Why does he call them signs? Because they point to something. They mean something. And what do they mean? They mean that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who came to deliver us from our sins. And we need to put our faith in Him. That's what it means And that's what the Pharisees do not want. They don't want people coming to that conclusion, to that interpretation. So what do they do? They pressure them. They're hounding this guy. In verses 22 and 23, they'd already said, if you say he's the Christ, you're out of the synagogue. That was huge. That means you're out of social life, you're out of the political life, you're out of the religious life, you're out altogether. That's some kind of amazing pressure. And then in verses 28 and 29, it says they reviled him. They reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for, as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now, I love it, because this guy answers him back and says, Well, that's kind of an amazing thing, <laughs> but you don't know where he comes from. And yet he was able to do this. The last way that they put pressure on him, when he answers him back like that, notice in verse 34, it says, They answered him, You were born in utter sin. You know what that's called? That's called an ad hominem attack. In the area of logic and reason, if you don't have enough information to convince somebody that your argument is true, then you attack the person rather than the issue. You see, reason and logic is about addressing issues and finding reasons to believe things and reasons why things are the way they are. If you disagree with somebody and you don't have enough proof to win the argument, then you attack them. And that's what they do here. They attacked him. You were born in utter sin. That's why you're blind to begin with, is what they're telling him. You were born in utter sin and you're going to teach us? Get rid of this guy. We don't need his testimony after all. And so they apply pressure in these different ways. And, you know, that's what, even when you look around our society, man, think back to COVID. Boy, if you disagreed with something around COVID, here comes the pressure, right? Lastly, there's a pleading of ignorance because in verse 29 it says, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. You know, Jesus had already warned him in chapter 7 and 8. He'd already warned him to think these things through and make a righteous judgment. He recognized that they needed to make a judgment. They needed to make a decision concerning Him, just like I needed to make a a decision concerning Christ. Otherwise, I'm still underneath the wrath of God rather than forgiven. Just like you need to make or needed to make a decision uh, of the person of Christ to embrace Him as your Savior. 
they needed to come to that point, but Jesus told them, you better, you better pay close attention and judge a righteous judgment. In chapter 7, verses 27 through 29, some of the people said this, we know where this man comes from, but when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. A little bit of a contradiction here because in chapter 7 they say, you know, when the Christ comes, aren't we supposed to not know where He comes from? And then in uh, chapter 9 they say, well, we don't believe because we don't know where He comes from. Well, can't have both ways. Now, if you look back at chapter 7, it does indicate that maybe the people are saying this, whereas the Pharisees maybe not so much. And that also, that understanding was actually from a misunderstanding of an, of an Old Testament passage as we dealt with back then. So Jesus proclaimed as He taught in the temple, You know Me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of My own accord. He who sent Me is true, and Him you do not know. I know Him, for I come from Him, and He sent Me. You see, He was pretty clear that He was sent by God the Father. And in verse 42 of chapter 7, it says, Has not Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village that David was? And this was a really sad deal because in the middle of all of that discussion, they point out that, look, the Christ was supposed to come from the city of David, which was Bethlehem. If you remember why Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem, it was because of a census. In other words, they would have a record of Jesus' birth taking place when they went there for the census. And they just never looked into it from what we can tell. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He fulfilled that prophecy, but they just kind of like completely overlooked it. John chapter 9, verse 30 through 33 in this passage, it says, The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. So he's giving his logical argument here. God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so he just completely went against what the Pharisees were saying. They were saying this man is not from God. This guy was saying if this man was not from God, he could not have done this. Now, he says this is an amazing thing that you guys are the ones that are paid to look into this stuff and to know these things, and you're missing it is what he points out to them. Well, they said in verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. You know, they make this schism between Moses and Jesus that is just not there. Moses spoke of Jesus. In fact, back in chapter 5, Jesus had pointed that out. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You're rejecting it. In fact, in verses 45 through 47 of chapter 5, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Because remember, from there on, Jesus went and he says, Okay, what did, what did Moses write about? Moses write about their journey out in the wilderness. And God brought down the bread from heaven, manna, from heaven to sustain their life. And Jesus goes right into talking about how He is the true bread from heaven. He is what Moses was pointing to. He would do the same thing with the water from the rock. As you remember, as they celebrated at the festival, Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to Me. Have that water. He would do the same thing with the Shekinah glory that would shine over the tabernacle in the wilderness. Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. He that follows me will not walk in darkness. He would do that with the tabernacle itself. He does it with the Sabbath. He does it with everything Moses talked about is fulfilled in Christ. 
John chapter 7, verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. You know, I looked up, if you take just the words in quotes, that little phrase, Him who sent me. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses that little phrase 11 times. You see, the Jews, they were not not recognizing that He was from God, from heaven, because He had been cryptic about it or hadn't told them about it. He had told them repeatedly and demonstrated in front of them with these miracles, these signs, that He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Why then did they persist in their unbelief? They didn't want to step off the throne. Their unbelief was just obstinate. It was determined. It was willful. It was stubborn. When you get right down to it in the end, that's really the nature of unbelief.